0: World will be brought into the church. And I'll, I'll mention that in a minute, but it's also a strong contrast to chapter 11. In chapter 11, John had a vision where the Gentiles are trampling the city. That's the old Jerusalem. Now they're being brought into the new Jerusalem, into the church. And then we are told that the gates will not be closed, the church is always to be open to all nations, from every nation, every tribe every people and every language. This is the church, the bride of Christ, the faithful wife of the Lamb for which Jesus came down to this earth to shed his blood in order to purchase her and to redeem her. She is of infinite value. If you were to ask what is the value of the blood of Christ, it is infinite in value but it is used to purchase that which is also of great value and that is the church, those who are God's people. Now we come to chapter 22. The vision continues. This is not a new vision. This is still the seventh and final vision. And so what is John talking about? He's still talking about the new Jerusalem, that is, the church. But here, the language that is used is not of a city. That's in chapter 21. The language that is used now comes from the Garden of Eden. It also comes from Ezekiel, but I think Ezekiel gets his imagery from the Garden of Eden. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first five verses here in Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. John is still being shown things by one of the angels of the bulls, the seven bulls. And what he sees here, obviously, is not literal, not to belabor the point, but we should know this by now, but rather it points to something that God is trying to convey through the use of images. And so the river of the water of life is not a literal river, but rather it is to sort of evoke and remind us of something that we've seen elsewhere in the Old Testament. The imagery of the water of life comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2. In its description of the Garden of Eden, we are told, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From, it, or from there, it separated into four headwaters. And then we're told, Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates. Now, I'm not an expert about such things, But rivers just don't generally seem to appear. They seem to have to have a source. Um, And yet this river in the Garden of Eden comes out from the ground, sort of bubbling up, springing up. And this is where this river comes and then it goes out and waters the whole earth. Ezekiel uses this same imagery in chapter 47 of his book. He's, He's brought to the temple. And then all of a sudden he notices that there's water coming out of the temple. And that's most unusual. That's not what's supposed to happen. Water's coming out, and then he goes a thousand, uh, I forget what it is, a thousand rods, I think, and it's up to his ankles, another thousand, it's up to his knees, keeps going up. And this water that comes out of the temple of God is watering the land of Palestine. It even goes down to the Dead Sea, and things once again begin to grow. John uses that imagery But with more clarity, the river of the water of life, which comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb, is seen as coming down the great street of that city. Now, if the city is the church, and we've said that it is, then John is telling his readers that that which the water of life represents, salvation in all its fullness, is seen as being among God's people. The river of the water of life is seen as flowing in the church, not because of us, because it comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb, but it is among God's people. And it is what God provides for his people, life, refreshment, nourishment. We need water to stay alive. And it is this water that God gives, not literal, but that of the life that he gives us, through the grace uh, He has shown in His Son. And so you have this life-giving water in the church, and on each side is the tree of life. Uh, We've not heard about the tree of life since Genesis. It's not mentioned anywhere else. And It's interesting that here we come to the end of the Bible and we're being told about something that is told us at the beginning. We are told that in the Garden of Eden there were two trees planted. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, The other is the tree of life. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the one, they are expelled from the garden. They are barred from coming back in. And God, in fact, says they can't come back in. From Genesis 3, the man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. After he drove the man out, he, that is God, placed on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim, that's plural for cherubs, uh, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the church. I'm sorry, the tree of life. I'm looking ahead. The tree of life. No, you cannot come. But in the church that has changed, because of what Christ has done, people can now come to the tree of life. They can now have salvation. They can drink from the river of the water of life. The blessings that Adam and Eve forfeited by disobeying has now been given to us and not simply restored, but in overwhelming ways, we have been given the blessings that Adam gave up. What we have gained in Christ is far more than what we lost in Adam. So Paul wrote to the Romans, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ? And Paul speaks of reigning with Christ. John is not the only one who does so. So what is being pictured here in chapter 29 is Eden, not simply restored, but perfected, consummated, made complete. By the way, have you noticed that we're told that the tree of life is on both sides of the river? Well, that, humanly speaking, is a practical impossibility. Um, some people have suggested that what is intended is not a single tree of life, but a forest, if you wish, of the tree of life. Um, That the language is symbolic, and I I don't think it's necessary to go there. I think the point is clear, that the gift of God through Jesus Christ is giving us life. Water and fruit from the tree. There's something else, though, that we should consider, and maybe we don't when we think of this. How is it that we have access to the tree of life? Adam and Eve didn't. There are cherubim, cherubs with flaming swords back and forth. Adam and Eve, you're not coming back here. You cannot eat from the tree of life and live forever. How is it that we can? Why is it that we can have eternal life? Why is it that we can have salvation? Is it not because Jesus himself hung on a tree? By his hanging on a tree, we have access to the tree of life. Now you might say, wait a minute. Jesus died on a cross. Um, But if you read the New Testament, if you get a chance this week, I think this would be an interesting study. The New Testament writers, when they speak of the death of Jesus, usually refer to a tree. They refer to the cross, but more often than not, they refer to the tree. In line with the Old Testament curse, that is, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Let me just give you some examples. When Peter and John and the other apostles are brought to the Sanhedrin and they're told, stop preaching about Jesus, they answered with what is familiar to us, we must obey God rather than men. But then the very next sentence is, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. When Peter preached to Cornelius and the Gentiles, it's the first time Peter's ever preached to Gentiles. We are witnesses of everything that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. In the first sermon that Paul preaches, that is recorded, uh, he's in uh, Pisidian Antioch, Antioch and Pisidia. He states, when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Peter's first epistle. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I've read all of these passages to show you that we have access to life because of his death. We can go to the tree of life because he hung on a tree of death. And how profoundly humbling this should be. That we have life because of his death, John is not finished with his description, however, he tells us that the tree is seen as bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. That is, there is a never ending supply of life for those who are god 's people. We live in a very strange time in which we no longer follow the seasons of fruits. Have you noticed that we 've talked about that that I can remember when I was younger, I could never remember the seasons, but I knew that, oh, this is a season for this fruit. Okay? And and you'd ask, I'd ask my mom, let's have, let's say, apples. And she'd say, well, it's not that season. Well, now, because of technology and because of transportation, there are no longer any seasons. Because if it's out of season here, it's in season somewhere else. But if you can imagine living in a world in which When fruits are not in season, there is nothing to eat. The description is now given 12 crops every year. That is one every month. There is always something to eat. God's people are always provided for in terms of the spiritual benefits we have in Christ. By the way, the promise made to the church in Ephesus, this goes back to chapter 2, to him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This promise, by the way, this benediction, or what we call it, this beatitude that is mentioned, is mentioned again here in chapter 22. If you look at verse number 14, the Lord willing, we will see it next week. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Look at what Christ has done for us. And yet, I would say, let's—it it isn't all for us. There are benefits even for those who are not God's people. They will spend eternity in hell. But Christ's people being in the world should have an effect on the rest of the world. And so we are told that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. The benefit of, of the fruit is given to God's people. But there are benefits for those who are not God's people. Not in terms of life, but in terms of redeeming every area of life. Remember what we saw several weeks ago. I am making everything new. John continues, no longer will there be any curse. And at this point, someone might say, ah, okay, there's the weakness in your argument. Now, now I know this cannot be talking about the church. This must be talking about heaven. I would argue that the curse of sin has been removed from our lives. The effects are still with us. But if the curse were still with us, then we would not have eternal life. We would not have the life of God. We wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. The curse has been removed. Jesus has given us new life. He has brought us from death to life, from darkness to light. By the way, as we approach the Christmas season... I would remind you of a carol that many sing, but apparently few uh, appreciate uh, what is being sung. It is the third verse of the carol, Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as far as the curse is found three times in this verse we sing about the curse and that the death of Christ has an impact on the effects of the curse in our lives Um, the call of the church is in fact to fight the effects of the curse to redeem every area of life to redeem it from the effects of sin we are not simply saying, well you know it's a fallen world what can you do it's a fallen world. There's nothing we can do. We have the river of the water of life. And we have the tree of life. We have the life that God has given us through the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit. There's something we can do by God's grace. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. We are told that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. That is, God will dwell among His people. He will be their God. They will be His people. And they will show this by serving Him. By the way, what does it mean to serve God? And I think here is where we get into trouble. To serve God means to obey Him. And to obey Him means to worship Him. Serving God begins with worship. That is very very far, I think, from what we hear, certainly from what I remember hearing growing up. Serving God meant evangelizing. It meant doing all these different things. That may be part of it, but it begins with obedience and worship. And I think oftentimes we get so busy serving God, if you wish, doing things for God, that we fail to worship Him, and and then we are not serving Him as we should. We are told they will see His face. Again, this is not literal. Rather, it describes the reality that it is we have a relationship with God, a personal relationship, a face-to-face relationship. It is the joy of being a child of God. His name will be on their foreheads, we are told. And this, I think, should remind us of what the high priest would wear. They would wear a gold band on their forehead that said, holy to the Lord. We are God's people. We don't belong to the beast. We belong to God. I think there's also a hint of the story of Moses, that Moses, to whom God spoke face to face, whenever he would leave the presence of God and go out and talk to mere mortals, his face would would shine. So he would actually have to wear a veil because people would freak out when they saw his face. It would just be shining. We are to have, I think, not only God's name written on our foreheads, but His, who he is in our faces. I think this is, in part, what John has in mind. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and we who with unveiled faces, we're not like Moses, we don't have a veil on our faces, reflect the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into the likeness of, or into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Then we are told there will be no more night. Again, not literal, but listen to what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. In John's Gospel, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. In the epistle to the Colossians, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. The age of the new covenant is the age of light. It is the time of light, not the time of darkness. Now, in the absolute and complete sense, this will not be true until Jesus returns. There is a progression that is occurring so that people say, well, you know what? Church the church seems to be in trouble right now. I don't see light in the church right now. And on some level, I might agree with you. But John is not speaking of something that is completely finished now, but something that is being done and will be completed when the Lord Jesus returns. And then we are told, and they shall reign with him forever and ever. We've already seen this in chapter 20, verse 6, that we will reign with Christ. And just to remind you, when we think of reigning, we think of getting to be able to tell others what to do. I can remember my younger sister, I'm the oldest, and the sister next to me, Michelle, uh, always wanted to be in charge. She sort of resented the fact that I was the oldest and whenever my parents were gone, I was in charge. And I love my sister dearly. That was years ago. She's not the same person. But when we were younger, she would say to me, I can hardly wait till you're gone. Because then I get to be in charge. When we think of reigning, that's what we think of. Because that's what we want. We want to be in charge. But we need to go back to the beginning, back to Genesis chapter 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man in his image. And he gave man the commission, "Replenish the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. If Adam were to do this, it would mean he would be obeying God. So to reign means to obey and to obey is to worship. And so when we are told that they will reign forever and ever, they will obey forever and ever. They will worship forever and ever. Because if you think about it, if reigning means getting to tell everyone what to do, then we're going to have chaos in the church, aren't we? Because not everyone can has the right to tell everybody else what to do. It's not talking about that. It's talking about obeying and about worshiping. But Lord willing, next week we will pick it up in verse number six. But let me ask a series of questions and try to answer them today. Why does John use the imagery from Eden? What was the purpose of Eden? Why? Why bring that in now that he's describing the church? Now that he's at the end of the Bible? Now that he's talking about the church, God's people? Why does he use the language of Eden? Well, we need to ask ourselves: What was the purpose of Eden? I think people usually fail to realize that Eden was a special place. The whole earth was not the Garden of Eden. God created a special place. It was a place of learning a place of training, a place where they were to learn how to obey God perfectly, regularly, consistently. It's a place where they were to learn how to work. And I think if Adam and Eve had not sinned, the day would come when God would say, now you're ready, go out. Go out and replenish the earth and subdue it. That is, there's work for Adam and Eve to do, and their children after them. But rather than sort of throwing them in the deep end of the pool, putting them in a place that needs more work than they're capable of doing, God puts them in a nice place, a safe place, a secure place, a beautiful place, a wonderful place. And there they are to learn. They learn how to work. They learn about each other. They learn about creation. They learn about God. But most importantly they learn how to obey God. And it starts out very simple. Name the animals, you know, take care of this garden. You can eat from all the trees but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's fairly basic. And they failed that test. But it was to be a place of learning. What is the purpose of the church? Why are we here? What is the purpose, what is the goal for us to be a child of God? What's that all about? I would say it's exactly like Eden. We are to be learning. We are to be, be training, being trained. We are to work. Above all, we are to learn to be obedient and to obey God. And that obedience is seen, at least initially, or foundationally in worship. I think that oftentimes people long for the Garden of Eden because they see it as a place where they don't have to do anything, where they can simply enjoy the benefits of what God has given. Paradise is seen as a place of no work, of doing nothing, of just kicking back and just sort of watching time roll by. No, Eden was school. Eden was an academy. It was the university. It's where they were to learn. And then after that, they were to go and subdue the earth. What is the church? Is it simply that we say, Guess what, folks? I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. And I get to talk to God whenever I want to, and I can pray. And then any time if I'm sort of feeling sad or I need some help, I have the Bible and it sort of picks me up. And they're just, oh, it's just wonderful to be a Christian. No, those things may be true on some level. I'm a little worried about that. But the reality is to be a Christian is to be in school, is to be learning, is to be growing, is to be learning how to be obedient. And we begin our obedience by worshiping God. I don't like to speculate, and I try to avoid it as much as possible. But stop and think a minute. What if Adam and Eve had not sinned? What if they learned what they needed to learn in the Garden of Eden? They had children, they began to go out, and they began to take care of the earth. Would Adam and Eve live forever on the earth? I don't think so. I think that Eden was a place and the earth was a place to learn so that one day they would go and live in the presence of God himself. Just like Enoch did. Enoch walked with God and then one day he's gone. He's with God. In the same way, we don't know how much time we have here on earth. That's in God's hands. And wherever we are in terms of the learning, you know, if we're at first grade or if we've got our PhDs, it doesn't matter. In spiritual things, when it's our time, it's our time. But while we are here, we are to embrace the Christian faith as an academy, as a learning experience. And not simply for information, we talked about that in Sunday school, but to be transformed, to learn, and to become more and more like Christ. See, the one thing most people don't associate with Jesus, I think, is obedience. See, we think Jesus got to do what everyone to do. And we think, it wasn't that cool. Go around and zap people and heal them and raise the dead and feed 5,000. Jesus did what he was told to do. He obeyed. He learned how to obey. Now, we're supposed to follow him. What does that mean? We are to learn how to obey. That's why we are the people of God. That's why we're in the church. And that's God's purpose for his people in this world. And it's all possible because our husband, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, came and paid the price necessary that he might purchase us to be his people. Let's pray together. Father, our, our minds are corrupted. Our thinking, our abilities are limited. We are finite. and Oftentimes we see things radically different than you do. We fail to see the value, the, the preciousness of the church that Jesus came and gave his life for. And we fail to see the purpose of the church. That is that we are here to learn, to be transformed into the image of your Son. We thank you for the life that you have given us, that you continue to give us. You not only give us life, but you nourish it, feed it, give it water by your Spirit and your Word. How humble we should be to realize that the God of all things, the God of the universe loved us and has given us life. And now as we continue our worship, may we keep these things in mind. The great unspeakable gift that you have given us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Get your hymnals if you would. Let's sing hymn number 73. May Jesus Christ be praised. And will you stand, please, as we sing this.